Good morning. It's good to see all of you, and it's good to see some uh, new faces again this week, or fresh faces. Welcome to everyone. Just a few things to let you know before we start. Uh, I'm going to be gone for the next three Sundays after today. So if you're watching at home and you're planning to come on one of the next Sundays and you haven't been yet since we restarted, if you could please let Steve Hope know so that he can keep track of numbers uh, just ahead of each Sunday. And then during the weeks that I'm gone, Steve is going to be picking up his series on the Ten Commandments. And I think there's going to be a blog this week uh, so you can just remind yourself what has gone on in the Ten Commandments so far. It's been a while since we've uh, had any of that series. But that will be resuming next Sunday. And then when I'm back and Steve is gone, uh, later in August, then we'll return to Judges at that point. Also, just to let you know, we will be sharing the Lord's Supper together next week. We have a procedure for doing that. The government has given uh, detailed guidelines on how to do that. So we're going to be following those guidelines to make sure that we do it safely. But it will be our first opportunity in a long time to share the Lord's Supper together. And then a few of you had asked about, obviously we're not collecting uh, offerings at the moment, but there is still a box at the back. So if you are wondering about that, you can use the, the wooden box on the back table. And then a little bit more advanced notice, we are planning to restart evening services in September. We decided to, to wait over the holiday period. So those will restart in September, so you could just mark that in your diary and keep that in mind. Those are the only uh, details I think I needed to mention to you. We've come here to worship God, and we're going to begin our time of worship by focusing on Jesus Christ and his work. And we'll do that by reading together some verses <clears throat> from the opening chapters of the book of Hebrews. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to read a little bit from Hebrews chapter 1 and then Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. If you have a seat, uh, the first song that we're going to hear this morning reminds us our Savior is King of Kings.
Let's pray. Oh God, we are so thankful for your Son, the radiance of your glory, the exact representation of your being, the one who has made you known. We look at Jesus and we see your glory revealed in your Son. We thank you not only for who he is, but also for all that he has done. Especially his work in providing purification for our sins. And breaking the devil's power. And breaking forever the power of death. We thank you that Jesus is alive today. We thank you for what he's doing today as he rules at your side unfolding history according to your plan. We thank you that nothing can stop the progress of your kingdom. And we praise you, our Father, for giving us a place in all of this as we follow our risen Savior. Help us this morning as we give our attention to you. Will you show us your glory in a fresh way And we know that as you do, everything else will take its proper place. As we see you for who you are, fear will lose its power. Enemies will no longer overwhelm us. And so we take a moment now to bring our needs and our concerns to you. Whatever those things are that are crowding in on us, and are threatening to overwhelm us. We bring them now quietly and lay them before you. as we bring our own concerns to you, we also pray for the many in our fellowship who have health concerns at the moment. You know each one of them. And we pray that you will remind them of your words to the Apostle Paul when you said to him in his weakness, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We pray also for Gary and Tracy today as they face the prospect of a difficult day tomorrow. Will you remind them of your promise? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Together as your people, we lift our eyes to you. The king of the universe who is also our loving Father. Amen. We're going to have a Bible reading now that reminds us our God and his Messiah are high above all. I'm going to read from Psalm 2.
Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore you kings be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's word. In its original context, that psalm was speaking about God's anointed king who ruled in Jerusalem, David and those who followed him. But the psalm was also looking much further into the future to God's ultimate Messiah, his son, Jesus Christ. And the next song that we're going to hear celebrates the victory of God's son. He wears the victor's crown. Just cool. 
For the last two weeks, we've been looking at the introduction to the book of Judges. The scene has been set for us in the opening chapters. By this point, we know why the Israelites are in the land of Canaan, and we know what they're supposed to be doing there. They've been sent to Canaan to bring God's judgment on the inhabitants of the land. And at the same time, they have arrived to claim the land as their own inheritance. God had promised this land to them, promised it originally to their ancestor Abraham. But what we've seen is, instead of driving out the Canaanites, the Israelites have been content to just live among them, to intermarry with them, and to worship their gods. That is the context for everything that follows in this book. The Israelites have forsaken the Lord their God, And so he is against them. They are under his wrath because of their sin. In other words, they are in the same position as everyone who goes their own way and disobeys the Lord. But we saw last week there is another factor at work in all of this. That factor is God's grace. The same God who is appropriately angry with these people is also filled with compassion. And in his compassion, God sends a series of saviors. They're referred to in the book as judges. But they are not like the kind of judges we think of today. Most of them are actually warriors. They deliver through combat, not through argument or through legal decisions. And this morning, we meet the first of these warrior saviors. Actually, we meet three saviors and a very fat king. So if you'll turn with me to Judges chapter 3, we're going to read from verse 7 through to the end of the chapter, verse 31.
The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man the son of Gerah, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his thigh, his right thigh, under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us! And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fall into the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Seirah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. 
So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. This is God's word. And it shows us two truths. The first one is a truth that comes up again and again in Scripture. The second truth is mentioned a lot less often in Scripture. In fact, it's a point we may not have thought of before. But it's a very helpful truth for you and I to get hold of. But first of all, in verses 7 to 11, we are reminded that history is in the Lord's hands. You may have noticed as we read through, there are a lot of hands in these verses. Verse 8 says, when the Israelites forsook the Lord, he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim. But then verse 10 tells us, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim into the hands of Othniel. He's the first of the saviors we meet in this passage. And the key truth here is that all of this is in the Lord's hands. Cushan Rishathaim couldn't have touched Israel if the Lord hadn't allowed it. And Othniel couldn't have overpowered Cushan Rishathaim if the Lord hadn't enabled Othniel. To be in someone's hands is to be under their control. They can do what they like with you. But the Bible wants us to see God is the only one who has true and absolute control. In this world, power of one form or another is constantly changing hands. Throughout history, rulers and regimes take power into their hands they take it out of their enemies' hands. People in business do the same. Big companies do it. They rise at the expense of another. But the Bible wants us to see all of this is ultimately in the Lord's hands. Every other ruler, every other powerful person, powerful institution... They've only been given authority for a time. And at the Lord's time, he will take their authority away. When you and I read the book of Judges, it's very easy for us to see it as a book of heroes. It's full of larger-than-life characters who do amazing things. And that is accurate to a point. But you'll notice as we're introduced here, to the first of the judges, we're not told anything amazing about him. No doubt the writer of Judges could have included details of Othniel's victories. He must have won some great battles during the 40 years he was leading Israel. I don't think the lack of detail about Othniel means that he was an uninteresting character. No, I think the details about Othniel have been passed over 
so we can see who this book is really about. We're being shown right at the start, as you read on, as you hear about leaders rising and falling, remember, over and above it all stands the Lord. History is in His hands. It's in His hands today, just as much as it was in the days of Kushan Rishathayim and all those other names we can barely pronounce. As you and I look at the people who have power in our own time and the people who rise to power, let's remember they are still in the Lord's hands. All of them are. Dale Ralph Davis sums up the point of verses 7 to 11 for us. He says, there's nothing but the bare essentials here, and those are about what the Lord has done. We have this first episode in such stripped-down style precisely so that we will see clearly what is most essential, the activity of the Lord. Sometimes interesting people can obscure that, and we end up watching these fascinating folks but never see what our God is doing. We're going to meet plenty of fascinating folks in this book starting this morning. And we meet plenty every day in the news as well. And in the church too sometimes. But as we watch them, let's never lose sight of the Lord who's at work through them all. And who has power over them all. The first episode in our passage is teaching us to focus on the Lord. The second episode teaches us how to think about the enemy. The start of this is very similar to the last section. The enemy's name has changed, but it sounds like the story is just the same. If you look at verse 12, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. If we have a look at this map, you can see that Moab, down in the bottom right, is a neighbor of Israel. And King Eglon forms an alliance between himself and his Moabite armies with the Ammonites and the Amalekites. The Ammonites were also neighbors of Israel. And the Amalekites were an old, old enemy of Israel. They were really wandering desert raiders, the Amalekites. And they had attacked the Israelites just after the exodus from Egypt, when the Israelites were in the desert. So at this point, King Eglon is leading a powerful coalition of Israel's enemies. And the enemies win. Verse 12 tells us it was the Lord who gave Eglon the victory because of Israel's evil. Now, of course, Eglon didn't see it that way. He has no sense at all that he might be serving the Lord's purposes. He thinks he's the big man. And he thinks he's doing all of this by himself. 
He moves into Israelite territory with his allies, and he sets up his base in what used to be Jericho. At this stage, it's called the City of Palms. And we're told the Israelites are subject to Eglon and his armies. They are in his hands for 18 years. 18 miserable years. Verse 15 tells us the Israelites cried out to the Lord. That doesn't necessarily mean they turned from their sin and repented. The phrase crying out simply means a cry of distress. Eglon's rule is oppressive. The people are in pain. They're being squeezed and they cry for help. And before we pass over that to get to the action here, it's important to remember something we have seen in previous weeks. This book is not just here so you and I can learn about obscure tribal kings and impress people in Bible quizzes. The book of Judges, like everything else in the Old Testament, was written down for our instruction, the New Testament says. It is useful for us, the New Testament tells us. Not just useful for Bible quizzes, but useful for life as Christians. And this account of King Eglon has something to teach you and me about our enemy. For a time, King Eglon and his allies were given power by the Lord over the rebellious and sinful people of Israel. They were given into Eglon's hands. And the Bible tells us this rebellious and sinful world has for a time been given into the hands of the enemy. We know that enemy as the devil, Satan. The Bible also calls him the evil one. And the Bible tells us the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now the world here means humanity in its defiance of God. Sinful humanity, that's what the New Testament means by the world, it has been given into the control of the evil one. So we're not being told here that the devil controls the weather. That's not what it means. We're not being told that it's the devil who raises up rulers and takes them down. The devil is not God. He does not have that kind of power. But we are being told that what God did at a local level in ancient Israel, giving the evil Israelites into the hands of King Eglon, God has also done that on a worldwide level giving sinful humanity into the hands of the devil. And in both cases, it is miserable to be in the hands of the enemy. Israel cried out in anguish while they lived under Eglon's power. And many people today live in distress. They cry out in pain and they don't even know why. They might not believe in the devil. They might not believe in sin. But they're slaves to sin all the same. They're mastered by their sinful desires and drives and ambitions. And it's miserable. They're under the power of a harsh and deceitful master. 
He promises them fulfillment through sin. But in the end, he gives them nothing but disappointment. Broken hearts and broken lives. So whether we're talking about a local enemy like Eglon or the big enemy, Satan, the point is just the same. The enemy is oppressive. It's important for us to recognize that. He has nothing good to give. You and I need to see that. If your life is not given over to God, the Bible tells you you're not your own master. You haven't broken free to live your own life. You're actually under the power of Satan. When Israel refused to serve the Lord, they didn't take charge of their situation. That's not what happened. They find themselves in the power of a harsh master. They served an oppressor who squeezed them. And they could not overcome him. And if you're not a Christian, whether or not you will accept this, that is a picture of your life. If you refuse to serve the Lord, then you are serving another master, a cruel one who you cannot overcome. The Bible teaches us the enemy is oppressive. But it also shows us how to escape from his power and to live without fear of him. It teaches us the enemy is oppressive and ridiculous. When something is ridiculous, it is worthy of ridicule. It's laughable. It's a joke. But before we get to that, notice how after being introduced to King Eglon and his oppressive rule, we meet the Lord's Savior, Ehud, in verse 15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. What a strange way to introduce someone. Of all the things that could have been said about Ehud, why tell us that he's left-handed? Well, literally the text says, he was restricted in his right hand. And some people have taken that to mean Ehud had some kind of physical deformity in his right hand. But I don't think that's the case. Here's why. We're told here Ehud comes from the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Benjaminite. And in chapter 20 of this book, we read about the army of the Benjamites. There were 26,000 swordsmen in the Benjaminite army. And we're told, among all these soldiers, there were 700 select troops who were left-handed. Each of them could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. The phrase there is exactly the same as the one here in our passage. Those 700 select troops were restricted in their right hand. Now I think it is highly unlikely 700 men from the same tribe all had the same physical deformity. 
What's going on is rather these select troops were specially trained to fight with their left hand. That gave them a significant advantage during combat. So here in our passage, we are not being told Ehud is an unlikely candidate to be Israel's deliverer. It's quite the opposite. He's a member of Israel's special forces. Ehud is a left-handed assassin. Verse 15 says he comes to Eglon with tribute. One of the things that made Eglon's rule so oppressive was the heavy tribute he demanded from the people, the payment. Ehud comes to deliver it, but he has plans to deliver something else as well. Verse 16 says, Ehud has prepared for this visit by making himself a special sword. It's a cubit long. A cubit was measured either as the distance from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger, or sometimes from your elbow to your knuckles. So this sword was somewhere between 15 and 18 inches long. It's a specially made sword just for the occasion. Ehud conceals it by strapping it to his right thigh under his clothing. Now we already know that left-handedness was an unusual thing at this time. So guards who were looking for concealed weapons, they would check on a person's left thigh. That's where a normal person would draw a sword from. In verse 17, Ehud arrives at the palace and he presents the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. You noticed a moment ago, Ehud was introduced with an unusual detail that turned out to be significant, his left-handedness. So when Eglon is introduced with a comment on his fatness, we can expect that's going to be significant too. And that's how it turns out. When we read this together earlier, you will have noticed the writer goes on to make quite a big deal here about Eglon's fat belly. And he makes quite a big deal about Eglon's exploding bowels. And the confusion that comes from the rotten smell of his exploding bowels. For some of us, this is not the Bible as we know it. Isn't that true? Why include these impolite details? Could it be the writer of Holy Scripture is making fun of King Eglon? Is the Bible allowed to do that? Well, the Bible's allowed to do whatever it wants. It doesn't have to conform to our ideas about what it should and shouldn't say. And there's no doubt the Bible is encouraging us to laugh at Eglon with his mounds of fat and his embarrassing smells. This isn't the only place in Scripture where we find this kind of thing. The prophet Elijah resorted to toilet humor to mock the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel. Most of our English translations have 
tidied it up a little bit, but he's quite rude to the prophets of Baal and what their God might be doing. But how can the Bible make fun of something so serious? Oppressive enemies. Well, notice here in our passage, it is when God's deliverer is introduced that the writer begins to poke fun of Eglon. Until Ehud appeared, the enemy looked like a winner. A successful military commander and a clever politician. Eglon headed up, remember, a powerful alliance of Moabites, Ammonites, and Amalekites. It must have taken political skill to put that alliance together and make it work. But once Ehud appears on the scene, Eglon becomes a joke. Ehud delivers the tribute to Eglon and then he leaves with those who had carried the tribute, which shows it must have been a big payment if there was a group who brought it. But then Ehud doubles back on his own and he tells Eglon in verse 19, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. This is a play on words because literally Ehud says, Your Majesty, I have a thing for you. Of course, Eglon takes it to mean a message. And in his pride, he stupidly dismisses his guards and he heaves his great blubbery bulk off the throne to receive this message. He's full of self-importance. But of course, the thing Ehud has for the king is actually his 18-inch dagger. And just like in an action movie, verse 21 suddenly goes into slow motion as every movement is highlighted. Ehud reached with his left hand drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Yuck! What a mess! What a smell! And it's the smell that allows Ehud to get away. He slips out, he locks the door behind him, and because of the smell, Eglon's servants assume the king is using the toilet. They decide they'd better give him all the time he needs, until finally, verse 25 says, having waited to the point of embarrassment, he's never taken this long before, eventually they go in to find their great leader, is no more than a mound of fat and feces on the floor. Eglon was an oppressive enemy. He was a powerful man. He made the people cry out in anguish. But in the end, he's shown to be a joke. A ridiculous buffoon. And remember what has made the difference. It was the arrival of Ehud. From the moment God's Savior appeared on the scene, 
the enemy began to look laughable. Earlier this morning, we read together from Psalm 2. The start of that psalm pictures the kings of the earth rising up, the rulers banding together against the Lord, and the Lord's response in Psalm 2 is to laugh at them. He scoffs at them, we're told. Why? Well, it's not because he likes what they're doing. It's not because they're harmless. It's because the Lord has installed his own king. Psalm 2 calls him the Lord's son. That son of God, the psalm tells us, will break the enemy with a rod of iron. He will dash the enemy to pieces like pottery. That is why the Lord in heaven laughs at the enemy. Their self-importance and their big ambitions are just a joke. The Lord's Savior will defeat them in an instant. With one blow. And so Christians throughout history have learned to see their great enemy, the devil, as ridiculous. Our Savior Jesus Christ has made the devil laughable. The New Testament says Jesus disarmed our great enemy. Jesus made a public spectacle of Satan triumphing over him by the cross. That was supposed to be the moment of Satan's greatest victory. The work he'd done to get it to that point. No doubt as Jesus went to the cross, Satan stood to receive the applause of his demons. But what Satan got at the cross was a death blow. Jesus the Savior didn't win by thrusting a dagger into Satan. Jesus won by laying down his life for sinful men and women. That's what undid Satan's hold on us. And by rising from the dead, Jesus broke Satan's power for good. As we sang earlier, today Jesus wears the victor's crown. The enemy has no hold on those who've been delivered from their sin through Christ. He has no power over those who belong to the Savior who conquered death. And ever since, the more Satan snorts and stomps around, the more ridiculous he looks. Those who belong to Christ can see him for what he is, an ass. Have you ever wondered why Satan is often pictured in a red suit with hooves and a tail carrying a pitchfork. It's a picture that comes actually from the Middle Ages, from the church. And the theologian R.C. Sproul explains the point of that picture. It was not intended to make the devil seem scary. Just the opposite, in fact. Sproul says, Christian people took steps to defend themselves from the wiles of Satan. And in trying to identify his weak points, they came to the conclusion that his greatest point of vulnerability was his pride. So they attacked him at that point by making silly caricatures of him in order to poke fun at him. No one in the church at that time believed that Satan actually wore a red suit, carried a pitchfork, and had hooves and horns. 
Christians understood, yes, Satan is a cruel, cruel enemy. But the reality of Jesus Christ and his victory have made Satan and his ambitions laughable. Does that mean we're not supposed to take Satan seriously? No, that is not the point. The people who came up with that picture took Satan very seriously. They knew very well the devil is a real enemy. But they understood what the writer of Judges understood. When we focus on the power and victory of God's Savior, we have nothing to fear from our former master. He used to have us under his thumb. But now he has no hold on us. We don't need to listen to his accusations. We don't need to give in to his temptations. We still have a battle on our hands. But we can fight that battle without fear. God's Savior has exposed the enemy as a loser. We see that here in Israel. After Ehud has triumphed over King Eglon, he goes to a place called Sirah, and look at verse 27. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him, leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. Notice that little detail. The Moabites were all vigorous and strong. These are the very same enemies who've been oppressing the Israelites under their harsh rule for years. They haven't lost any of their vigor and strength. But now, God's Savior is on the scene. And those who are with him cannot lose. No matter how powerful the enemy is. And when you and I are with Jesus the Savior, the enemy we face doesn't get any less powerful. His fury doesn't disappear. But compared to our Savior, the enemy is just pathetic. He's no match for our risen Savior. When our hope is in Christ and we live to follow Christ, the enemy is no more to be feared than a donkey in a little red jacket or a fat king in his palace. The last verse of our passage gives us just two sentences on another judge called Shamgar. And no doubt it would be very interesting to hear more about how he struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Surely that would have made for a good chapter in its own right. So why mention Shamgar at all if we're not going to get the full story about him? I think the answer is simply this. Shamgar is tagged on the end of Ehud's story to remind us Ehud's victory was temporary. It was a great deliverance, but it didn't last. 
Ehud was the savior of Israel for 80 years. He was not the eternal savior of the world. After Ehud, there was still the need for other saviors, like Shamgar. But you and I have a much, much better savior. Jesus Christ won a victory that never needs to be won again. The results of Christ's victory last forever. No other saviors are needed, and they never will be. In the meantime, when the devil accuses us, when he tries to call us to heal, when he promises us big things, if we'll just do what he says, when the devil tries to rule you and me in any of those ways, let's remember he is as ridiculous as fat King Eglon. Yes, we're still called to battle as the Israelites were. The Christian life is a battle. We're not to ignore our enemy, but we're not to fear him either. Let's see him as he is, an enemy who's been outsmarted and overpowered by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's keep our eyes on our Savior. The Lord of history has put history in Jesus' hands. No enemy can stand against him. And when we turn to him, repenting of our sin, trusting in his work on the cross, then our present and our future are safe with Jesus. We're on the winning side, whatever enemies might come against us. You and I have the privilege of following Jesus to victory. God's word speaks about this in many places. And we're going to respond to his word now with some words taken from Romans chapter 8. So if you'll stand with me, we'll say these verses from Romans 8 together. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's listen to our final song that reminds us our Savior is on the highest throne.
Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Dear children, the one who is in you and with you is greater than the one who is in the world. Thanks be to God. Amen.